Hey everyone, happy Thanksgiving to all of our Sunday Night Bible Fellowship listeners. We have Thanksgiving coming up this coming Thursday, and we trust that this will be a wonderful, blessed time for you to give thanks to our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanksgiving is such a wonderful time of the year when we can extend to God our thankful hearts for all that he has done for us, from everything from salvation to his son dying on the cross, to all of the blessings that we receive from him on a daily basis. We truly do have a lot to be thankful for and grateful for. And one thing, one theme that runs throughout all of Scripture that God wants us to have and to do is to have a thankful heart and to give thanks. First Thessalonians 5 says, give thanks in all things. So that is something that should be on our lips all throughout the day as we just thank him constantly for life, for health, for his goodness, his kindness, his love towards us. All so wonderful. And as I wrote in my email for this week, we are thankful for his word. And that's what we are studying here at Sunday Night Bible Fellowship, is God's word. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to open them to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, or if you want to follow along at the screen, if you have your computer on, we can march through this together. I put the title on this one of Don't Waste Your Life. We are, in many ways, wasteful people. We throw away a lot of things. We waste a lot of things. Perhaps one of the biggest things that we waste is our time. And God is concerned about us, about what he has given to us, and the fact that we need to make good use of all that he has given to us to use it for his kingdom, to use it for his glory. And so this is a great message and one that is instructful for all of us. Even if you're listening today, you might not be a believer in Jesus Christ. You might not, may have never turned your life over to Christ. But nevertheless, this will still be a message for you because God talks about Essentially, everybody in this world, they will fit into one of the categories of what he talks about here. And, of course, he will do that through a parable. So, let's take a look at Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 11. Now, we completed last week. We looked at the story of Zacchaeus. Wonderful story. Story that just tells how... God moved in this man's heart, even though he was an outcast, so to speak, in that society, being hated by everyone because he was a chief tax collector. But God and the Lord Jesus wonderfully saved this man, and his life was instantly changed. I mean, he had a whole different view of who he was and what was right and what was wrong. And so he wanted to make right all the things that he had done, all the money he had extorted from people, 
in his tax business. He wanted to make those things right. And so it not only tells us of his salvation, but it tells us of his transformation. And that's what salvation is all about, is is the fact that when we are saved, therefore our lives should change. And his life certainly did change. So Jesus was telling this story about Zacchaeus, and it says in verse 11 here, uh, while they were listening to these things. So Jesus has their attention. Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So as I said, Jesus has their attention here. He's been telling this story, and now he is going to go on to tell this parable. A fitting parable in many ways. But one of the ways is that once you are saved, you now, God gives you resources, God gives you all kinds of things that you can go out and you can invest for the kingdom of God. And so it talks in many ways to believers here. And so we want to perk up our ears as we listen to Jesus talk to us. He is on the way between Jericho and Jerusalem. This is just before the Passover. He's going to arrive in Jerusalem. He will be the Passover lamb who will give his life for the sin that has been committed by individuals in this world. So he is going to die for sinful man. So in this Passover, this Passover will bring Josephus, a major historian in the first century, Josephus tells us that about two million Jews will come to Jerusalem during the Passover. So you have a lot of Jews who are coming. And we talked a little bit about that last week as uh, Jesus goes through Jericho. He's got a large crowd following him as well as many others who are coming for the Passover. And I get the sense here in verse 11 that the Jews are anticipating something happening. They supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. You know, in their minds, they had kind of put this all together. They had witnessed, many of them had witnessed his miracles, his healings, his casting out demons, his claims to be the Messiah. They put all those things together and they thought that they read all the signs correctly and therefore what a great time for Jesus to set up his kingdom. So they were anticipating that Jesus was going to Jerusalem and immediately set up his kingdom. You've got to remember, as we've said before, they are not looking for a savior. They are not looking for someone who will die for their sins and uh, he will deal with their sin problem, their sin issue. They are looking for someone who will defeat the Romans, who will set up his kingdom and bring peace and harmony to Israel. And he will be the protector. He will be the victory general to defeat Rome and to establish his kingdom. So they thought they had it all figured out. All throughout history, man, particularly Christians in church history, have thought they've got it figured out. And so they think they have all the signs figured out, and they say that, well, Jesus has to return, we're waiting, it'll happen 
perhaps within at least the next five years, next 10 years, 20 years. All kinds of dates have been set. And really this parable in some ways is directed towards those people who continually claim that they know the signs and these signs are for today. And it means that Jesus is going to be coming back soon. Uh, the clock, the prophetic clock, reads one minute to 12. We're just about right there and whatever. And in this parable, Jesus is saying, don't focus on that. I want you to focus on accomplishing my will and what I want to accomplish in this world. And when I return, I'll return. But don't focus on that. Last week, we saw that Jesus said exactly why he came. He came to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. That continues to be our mission. We are to go out, we are to seek, and we are to save the lost. So his entire ministry, Jesus' entire ministry, was about salvation, saving the lost, bring the internal kingdom to the hearts of man. Jesus said, my kingdom is already among you. And he is talking about the fact that the internal kingdom the kingdom that he will come into a person's life and he will rule over their hearts. That's the kingdom he's talking about, and that has already come. And so he's saying this is not the time that he will set up his kingdom, even though that's what they were anticipating. Verse 12, so he said, now he's going to give them a parable. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. So Jesus here tells them a parable which they could relate to. This parable was talking about. They knew exactly what it was talking about. When he starts into this parable, oh, right away, they're thinking, yeah, I know what this parable is about. I've, I've witnessed this before. And this all starts with the Herodian dynasty. And so on the next slide, I've got a picture of that dynasty. At the top, Herod the Great. He has, he had 10 different wives, four are listed here, and he has, and I put a red square around three of his sons that he had, Herod Antipas, Archelaus, and Herod Philip, and he had two of those by Malthais, one of his wives, and the one I want to zero in on is Archelaus. Archelaus, you'll notice, ruled from 4 B.C. to A.D. 6. He ruled Judea and he ruled Samaria. So he's the primary one that's over Jerusalem. Jericho, this area right in there, is where he was over. Now, in 40 B.C., if you back up now, in 40 B.C., follow along with this, Herod goes to Rome. Why does he go to Rome? To secure the right to rule under the Caesar in Israel. He is granted that right. Herod, this is the guy at the top, grandfather of it all, Herod dies in 4 BC. Okay? His will states that the kingdom will be divided into three parts and given to his three sons. And this is where Archelaus comes in. Archelaus was given Judea and Samaria. Okay, Archelaus 
While he ruled, he built a palace in Jericho. We talked about Jericho last time and what a wonderful part of the country that was. Did get too cold in the wintertime. There were palaces, there were amphitheaters, theaters, so on, that were built there by many of the politicians, by the kings, leaders of that day. He built a palace in Jericho. I say that because these are people that are going from Jericho to Jerusalem. These are people that are familiar with Archelaus. Okay, When the time had come, once Archelaus had received the kingdom, he still had to travel to Rome to receive his official right from the Caesar to rule over Judea and Samaria. Even though it had been granted to him and had been willed to him, and he had, had gotten it from Herod, his father, yet they were still under Roman rule, and he still would have to go and travel to Rome to get the official right from the Caesar himself to rule. And he received that right. Now listen, when he was going to Rome to receive that official right from the Caesar, there were protesters who followed him all the way to Rome. And this is what they said. And I find this really interesting, really fascinating. We do not want Archelaus to rule over us. Why was that? Well, they hated him. Now, he hadn't done anything particular to them. They just didn't want anybody to rule over them. And it's quite a jaunt all the way to Rome so that when the Caesar is sitting there going to give Archelaus the official right to rule over Judea and Samaria, he also has protesters there who are protesting the fact that they do not want Archelaus to rule over it. So this is what's going on. So that brings us to this parable then. And it's a parable about a nobleman. And this nobleman, they're thinking in their minds, ah, this is like Archelaus, okay? He is going to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then he is going to return. So, in this, right away, there's going to be delay, there's going to be a delay before he returns, because it's going to take some time to travel up there. He's going to leave this country, he's going to leave behind Judea and Samaria, and he's going to leave, and he's going to travel all the way up to Rome, he's going to get the official pronouncement that he is the leader, the king, whatever, and then he's going to travel back again. So there will be a period of time. Now, Jesus is relating this because not only does the nobleman stand for Archelaus, the story of Archelaus, but this nobleman here also stands for Jesus. And Jesus, living on this earth, he is going to, uh, Jesus is comparing himself and saying, look, I'm going to go away for a period of time to receive back my kingdom from the Father, but I'm going to return. You don't know when that'll be, but I will return. But there will be a delay in my coming. So don't think that right now I am going to Jerusalem and I'm going to set up the kingdom. I'm not going to do that. I have to go away first. 
I will go away to heaven. I will receive the kingdom from my Father, a kingdom which has been, catch this, usurped by Satan in the Garden of Eden. And Satan right now has usurped that authority. Satan right now, as Scripture calls him, is the ruler of this universe. But it's only temporary. This world still belongs to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though it's been usurped, Christ died and provided the sacrifice whereby he would someday be able to return and claim this kingdom for himself, which he will do. Right now, he's still away. He's still with God the Father. God the Father will grant to him the time when he will return. When he returns, he will set up his kingdom. He will be the ruler in all parts of this world in this universe. Right now, it's temporarily being usurped by Satan. Then, when the thousand-year reign of Christ begins, he will be again the ruler of this world from his kingdom in Jerusalem. And so there will be a fulfillment of all that he is going to do in the future that will come with the setting up of the kingdom. So Jesus here is relating this to the Jews who thought this was the time for the external physical kingdom to be established, but it was not. But he wants them to understand that, and he wants them to understand that while he is gone, I don't want you wasting your lives. He does not want us wasting our lives while he is gone before he returns. And so that's what the rest of this parable is going to be talking about. Take a look at what verse 13 says. Then moving on to verse 13, it says, and he called 10 of his slaves and he gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. Okay, so he's leaving. He's taking off. He's going to a distant country to receive a kingdom. And while he is gone, this nobleman is saying to his slaves, he's called 10 of his slaves, and he says, tell you what, guys, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you each a mina, and I want you to do business with that mina until I come back. So he gives them each a mina. Now, what's a mina? Well, just so you understand the coins and so on, the money that they used in those days, a drachma, you've heard of that before, the Bible talks about it, that's one day's wage. A hundred drachmas equals one mina. Okay? So you've got a hundred days wages in a mina, which is little over three months. 60 minas equals one talent. You've heard the, I think it's Matthew 25, you've heard the parable of the talents. Well, this is what a talent is, it's 60 minas. A talent is 3,000 shekels. You've heard of shekels. A mina is 50 shekels. A mina equals 100 days wages or about three months pay. If you translate that into our current day, if you say that the average income in the United States is $75,000, if you take a fourth of that, 
it's about eighteen, nineteen thousand dollars that you would have that would equal the three months pay or so. So it's a considerable amount of money. If you were someplace working for somebody, working for an investment firm or whatever, and somebody said to you, here you go, here's $18,000, I'm going to go away, I'm going to come back, I'll with this. How are you going to invest it? $18,000 today is still a good chunk. And what would you do with it? How would you invest it? Now notice he says here to do business. In other words, don't focus on my return, rather focus on the return of your investment. Stay busy, work hard, be wise, use all of your resources. That's what he's saying when he's saying do business. Don't just sit around doing nothing on your 18,000 or on your mina that you've got. You see, in this whole thing, the nobleman doesn't need the money. I mean, this guy's getting more money than he'll probably spend in his lifetime. This is for the servants. What he's doing is he is determining who are the faithful servants, who are the faithful slaves that will take what I have and they will invest it wisely and there will be a great return on it. So they will be showing their love and their dedication to the nobleman by how they invest their mina. Verse 14, but the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Sound familiar? Sure. That's just what's right in the whole story of Archelaus, who goes to Rome, and he's got a delegation following after him up to Rome to protest Archelaus being over them, and saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So here is the rebellion. Here are those who were created by God who will not bow the knee to him. They hate him. Not for any particular reason. They just don't want anybody to rule over him. They don't want an authority over their lives. You see, that's exactly why when you bring this over to the spiritual realm, that's exactly why we have people who have invented evolution. People don't want a God who's going to rule over them or a God that they are going to have to be accountable to. Man does not want to be responsible or accountable to a higher authority. So you just cut God out of the picture and then you create something like evolution, which is so stupid and so dumb when you get down to looking at it and what they're trying to say in evolution because it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I won't get into all of that here. Maybe at a later time we finish Luke, we'll talk about that. But again, it's a, it, that's a broken system. It's a broken philosophy. It makes no sense, but Romans 1 tells us that that's exactly what's going to happen. People are going to suppress the truth in order that they might have something that they believe in called evolution. And that's because they do not want to be responsible or accountable. For the people that followed Archelaus, that's exactly what they're saying. We don't want this guy. We don't want to be accountable to him. We don't want him ruling over us. And so they hated him. So there's a classification there of people that some people fall into. 
Okay, so moving on to verse 15. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. All right, so let's just stop right there a minute. So he returns, as he promised he would. He returns, and he wants to see now these slaves that he each gave a mina to he wants to see and know what business they had done. How did they do in, with their investment? So now comes accountability. He returns and the first thing he does is to call the slaves and to find out how they did. It's like a college course in investing. I majored in both education and business and one of the business courses that I took was in investing. And what they did at the beginning of the quarter was they took all the students in the classroom, and they gave them an imaginary $10,000. And with that $10,000 then, you were to invest it. Stock market, stocks, bonds, whatever type of a thing. And then at the end of the quarter, the teacher would see how you did, what you chose, how you did your research on the companies that you invested in, so on and so forth. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here is the fact that this is the end of the quarter now. The master has returned, and he has given them something to use to invest, and how did they do? They need to give uh, an accountability. They need to give a report. So the three are called forward to give a report. Slave number one, it says in verse 16, the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. So, he has put forth 10 more minas, and so, verse 17, the master tells him, and he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over 10 cities. Okay, so, he makes 10 minas, he's got a total of 11 minas altogether, he gets 10 cities to rule over. Slave number two, verse 18, the second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. So he made five cities more. Half of what the number one slave made, but nevertheless, he did make five more. He had a total of six. So his reward is he gets five cities to rule over. So these two showed their love for their master and trustworthiness by the return on their investment. They proved loyal. They proved they honored him. They loved him. They wanted to serve him. They did that. And as a result, they were greatly rewarded. Now, just note here that you are not given rest or retirement as a reward. You are given more responsibility. You are given more work. Now, we translate that over into the spiritual realm, and someday when we get to heaven and we are given our rewards and we are given a part of the universe or whatever to rule and to reign over, as Scripture tells us we will, it's not going to be a tiring thing, and we're not going to be saying, oh, man, now i got to continue to work, and we're, we will happily work. Just remember that in the garden, even before sin occurred, 
man was given work to do. Work is the best thing for man. To keep occupied, he gets his self-worth. There's so many things that come out of working. And so here in this parable, you'll notice that for being faithful in little, you get much. You get to increase. Your joy, your satisfaction, your self-worth, all will increase because you've been faithful in a little bit, and now you're given much. Okay. All right. Let's take a look at verse 20. Another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept and put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. All right, so here we've got the a third person. And I want to right away point out the word that starts verse 20, and that's the word another. It's a very interesting word that was chosen very carefully by Luke under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to get us to understand that this third person is different. Because the word that, that's used here, the word for another, the Greek word, heteros, is a word that means another of a different kind. This guy is a different kind than the first two. The first two went out, they invested, they got a return. This third guy, he doesn't go out. He doesn't invest. He wraps what he has in a handkerchief, as it says here, and and does nothing with it. So he is a different kind, and that's why that word is chosen. Could have used, if he was the same kind, there would have been another word that would have been used, and that's the word alas, which means another of the same kind. But that word is not used here. So between those two words, for instance, when we talk, we use the heteros, we use the word heteroxy or heterox kind of marriage. Heterosexual marriage means you've got a man and a woman in the marriage. Alas, we would say, is a homosexual relationship. It is another of the same kind. The, the people that are involved in that relationship are the same kind. They're not man and woman. They're man and man or woman and woman. Okay? So that's the difference between these. This guy is a different kind of person. So the third servant wraps it up in a handkerchief. Why? Well, it tells us in verse 21, number one, because he's afraid of the nobleman. Why is he afraid of the nobleman? Because of number two, because the nobleman was an exacting man. The word exacting that's used here is a word that means, in fact, we get our word from it, austere. Austere means to be harsh or strict or unfair. means not to be gracious. And so this is the way this slave perceived the nobleman. And number three, he believed the nobleman, catch this, the nobleman was a thief. He's accusing the nobleman of taking what was not rightfully his. Notice it in verse 21, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. Notice, you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. He's accusing him of being a thief, of being a robber, okay? So he is saying, really, it is the nobleman's fault for being a tough guy 
and that is why he did not invest. I was afraid of you. I was scared of you. I know what kind of a person you are. You're a tough person. You're a strict, you are an unfair person. You take what's, what isn't even yours. So I was really afraid of you. I just wrapped it up in a handkerchief and I just put it away. Now, even in that society, that is a wrong thing to do. If you have that much money, you don't wrap it up in a handkerchief. You bury it in the ground. He didn't do that, which shows he was just reckless with it. He really didn't care about the whole thing. That wasn't important to him. And what that indicates here is there is no relationship between these two, I don't think, between the slave and between his master. There is no love for the nobleman. There is no desire to honor the nobleman. There is no desire to serve the nobleman. The nobleman is seen as a cold, legalistic, hard-nosed person. We know that he wasn't that. You just take a look at the first two slaves, what he gave to them. He was very generous. He turned around, gave one ten cities, gave another five cities. This guy had a totally wrong perception of who the nobleman was. Just like today, people have very wrong understanding of who God is. They see him as a wrathful, condemning kind of person that just puts out a bunch of rules and regulations. He's really a cosmic killjoy, wants us to have no fun, and so on. That's a wrong perception of who God is. God is not that. Does God deal out wrath? Sure. Does God deal out punishment? Yes, he does. Does he deal out condemnation? Sure he does. But that's because of the fact that we reject him. He is standing with open arms, more than gracious, more than willing to receive us and to take us in as his children and to bless us with all kinds of wonderful gifts and resources. But many people perceive him in a wrong way. Verse 22. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I do not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put your money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. So Jesus is saying here, you think I'm a harsh man? Then I'll judge you like a harsh man. If that's the way you perceive me, then I guess I need to fulfill your caricature of me. One word I want to point out here is the word worthless. By your own words, I will judge you. Jesus says, you worthless slave. That word worthless in the Greek is paniras. It's a word which we would normally translate evil or wicked. In fact, it's used 72 times in the New Testament. And the New American Standard here translates it worthless. I think other translations use the word wicked. And I really believe that's a better translation. It's not that he was worthless. He was actually a wicked slave. That's what Jesus calls him. And you see, there's no logic here. If the nobleman is an exacting is exacting, then the minus should have been put in the bank. I mean, if the nobleman is strict and exacting and just 
wants everything to be to the letter of the law, well then why wouldn't you at least put the money in the bank so that it could earn interest? And he didn't even do that. And that's what Jesus is saying. Then why didn't you, verse 23, then why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Instead, what you do is you roll it up in a handkerchief. So there was absolutely no attempt to invest. This slave could care less. Couldn't care less. Again, shows his heart, shows his attitude towards the nobleman. So I just put a little summary together here uh, because there is a lot of discussion, some argument, some controversy over whether this third one is a believer or is not a believer. I don't think this guy is a believer. What he's representing here is the unbeliever. Now, is it true that there will be believers in the kingdom, in churches around the world that don't do anything with the resources that God has given him? Oh, I'm sure there are. But by the description, by these five things that I put down here, I don't think this guy is a believer. Number one is because of the word, which we've been discussing, heteros, means another of a different kind. So a word was chosen here, which will convey the idea that this guy is different from the first two. Number two, he was afraid of the master, which I think indicates he had no relationship with the master. Number three, he calls his master a severe, strict, exacting, austere man. Again, doesn't show any kind of relationship or love between them or whatever. Number four, he accuses his master of being a thief. I mean, that's a that's really a strong thing to to say and accuse. If you're a believer, when would you ever accuse God of being a thief or a robber? And number five, the master calls him a wicked slave. So if you're using that word wicked, I don't find any place in the Bible that God or the Lord Jesus Christ calls one of his children, one of his sheep, those who are wicked. So anyway, I think that's that's kind of the... Uh, Summary on whether this guy is a believer or unbeliever. All right, verses 24 to 27 then. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. All right, let's stop right there. People look at this and they say, You know, Jesus says to the bystanders, those standing around, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And so they turn around and they say, well, Master, he has 10 minas already, and why are we taking away from this one guy his mina? Well, remember this. The nobleman is only taking back what is his. He is not taking from the poor and giving to the rich. It was his money to start with. He's just taking back the money that is his because it wasn't invested. What he is seeking, he is seeking he is an investor who is seeking the most return he can on his minus, on his money that he has. And therefore, he's moving it around. He's going to move it to a place that's getting a good return. We would do the same thing. If you have a savings account, you have it in a bank that's earning a certain amount of interest, 
or you have it in stocks or bonds or whatever that's earning a certain amount of interest. But you look over here and here is another bank that's paying more interest, more money, or these, this group of stocks or whatever, or this company is giving you a greater return. What would you do? You would move it from one to the other the place where you're going to get a greater return. That's all this guy is doing here. Because that is the way, if you look at it in a spiritual realm, that is the way grace is. Grace keeps giving you more. God keeps piling it on. Uh, notice Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. I put it in here. A couple of my favorite verses in Ephesians. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, According to the riches of his grace, notice verse 8, which he lavished on us. That's what grace does. Grace lavishes us with God's blessings, with all the results of salvation that are all given to us. Fifty-some things that happened to us at the time of salvation. I mean, God just poured it on and keeps pouring it on. And that's what grace does. And so I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given. This is verse 26. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And so God is going to put his money, so to speak, with those who will bring the greatest return. Again, this is a parable, and he is trying to tell us that those who are good, who are faithful servants, and slaves are the ones who will be rewarded. And then in verse 27, But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So this is the fourth group. We've seen the first two. They were good stewards. They were faithful stewards. They went out. They invested. One did a better job than the other person did. But nevertheless, they both invested. They both loved their master. They went out, they did what they could in order to get a return on their investment. The third one is one who really doesn't give a rip, doesn't care, has no love for his master, so on. So here is the fourth and final group, and that is verse 27, but these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So here's a fourth group. And the fourth group are his enemies. These are the unbelievers. These are the ones who want nothing to do with God. Okay, they want to just live their lives. They don't want to be accountable or responsible to anybody higher than them. In fact, they protest that they would have anybody over them. They go to great lengths to tell the world that they want no part of any authority, any godly authority ruling over them. And what they will face as a result will be eternal condemnation and judgment. That's what verse 27 is saying here. Slay them in my presence. That will happen at the great white throne judgment. Okay. Henry Morris has said, in the Christian life, we do not stand still. We use our gifts and make progress, or we lose what we have. End quote. All right, application. 
eight things I've listed down here in application. Number one, we do not know when Christ will return. We are to do business. I think uh, one translation, maybe the King James says, occupy until he comes. Don't waste your life. Don't give up and say, well, Christ is just, he's coming right around the corner. He's going to be here next year or then the next five years. And you know, I'm just going to wait for him. Jesus would say, no, you accomplish my will in the world. You go out, you use the resources that you have. Don't waste your life. Just get out there and do all you can for the kingdom. I'll take care of when I'm going to return. And when I do return, I will reward you greatly for what you have done. Number two, though our individual resources and spiritual gifts differ from believer to believer, we all have different gifts. We all have different resources that have been given to us, certain homes, cars, money that's been entrusted to us, whatever. God is the one who divvies that up as he sees fit. And to whom much is given, you know what? Much is required. And so if you are given little, for instance, then it's not required in a great way. I mean, it's required what you've been given, but if you've if you've only been given, let's say, $10, he's not going to hold you accountable and responsible for $100. He will reward you based on what you did with the $10, not with the other $90 that you did not have. So though our individual resources and our spiritual gifts differ from believer to believer, we all have one commodity, and everybody has exactly the same of this commodity, and that's time. We have all the same amount of time. You can't say ever, well, you know, I've only got 24 hours in a day, but you know that guy over there? He's got 28 hours in his day. Or that person over there has 35. And they can accomplish so much more. They get so much more done than me. That's not true. We all have the exact amount of time. Use your time wisely. The dying words of Queen Elizabeth I were these, quote, all my possessions for a moment of time, end quote. Just think, she comes to the end of her life. She's got all this wealth, all these possessions. She would give it all if she could just have one more moment of time. That's how precious time is. Number three, though all believers have opportunity to invest in the kingdom, there will not be equal results. We all have a certain amount of resources. We can all invest what we have in the kingdom, but there will be different results. And how wisely we use what God has given to us will determine what the results will be, and they will be different. Number four, the Lord Jesus will give out rewards in eternity for faithful use of the opportunities each believer has been afforded. He's looking for faithful use of what we have. Number five, failure to use what we have been given will result in us losing what we have been given. Failure to use what we have been given will result in us losing what we have been given. What does that mean? It simply means that if you've been given a lot 
and you don't use it. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that what we put our lives into, if it's just worldly goods and worldly things and so on, all of that someday is just going to burn up. It's going to go away. It's not going to be there. And all that we neglected that God had given to us and we didn't use, that'll just sit there. And we won't have it. And we'll lose reward because we did not make use of what he has given to us. Number six, we are determining right now in time what we will be doing for all eternity. That's what this parable teaches us. Right now you're faithful. The number one guy, the number one slave was faithful with his mina, got 10 minas, given 10 cities. So his future was going to be ruling over 10 cities. The second one, he got five more minas. He's going to get five more cities. So it affects your future. Take that over into the spiritual realm. We're determining right now in time what we will be doing for all eternity. If you're faithful in this life and what he's given you right now, then in eternity, you will be given much greater responsibilities and abilities to serve him. Which brings me to number seven. I want you to catch this concept. We determine the size of the container. Container, I mean by that the capacity to serve that we will bring to the Bema seat. What's the Bema seat? The Bema seat is the evaluation seat of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. I put it in the email this week. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat there, the word that's used, the bematas, the bema of Christ. The evaluation seat. Not a judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment. We're not talking about gnashing of teeth and tears here and so on. This is very simply an evaluation of your life and every believer's life that will occur shortly after the rapture takes place. We will all appear individually, one by one, before Christ. And he will reward us. He will recompense us based on what we have done with our lives while we were here on this earth in our bodies. So, when we come before him at the Bema seat, we will come and I'm I'm just using a a metaphor here, we will come like with a container. That container represents a capacity to serve. So how big will our container be? That is determined by what we do right now in this world. And we'll bring that to the Bema seat. And you know what? God will fill whatever container we bring. Do we bring a 55-gallon drum? Do we bring a 5-gallon pail? Do we bring a cup? Do we bring a thimble? Whatever we have, whatever we bring, God will fill with reward. So we are determined right now our capacity to serve. We are determining right now our container that God will fill when we stand before him. Verse 8, therefore we will spend eternity using our capacity to serve to rule, and to reign in the kingdom of God. That is an awesome thought. We get bogged down. We get 
just thinking about this world and all the stuff that's going on in this world, God's telling us, look, think about me. Think about what I've given you. Think about how you can use what I've given you to bring glory to me, to bring people to Christ, to help other believers in their journey, in their spiritual journey down here on this earth. Use all those resources for that. Because if you do, and you do a good job of it, you are enlarging your capacity to serve. And someday you will be rewarded for that, and you will be ruling, as it says, and reigning with Christ in his kingdom. What a great thought. What motivation to go out and to do all we can do, to take the time that we have and use it wisely for his glory, not waste our time, not waste our life. Oh, these are all such important things. Well, let's close in prayer today. Father, we are so grateful for this text that we have looked at today. Because it's a text that someday when we stand before you, you will be able to say to us, I told you so. I told you I would reward you. I told you I would give you whatever capacity you have determined that you have. And so this holds us accountable because we know by listening to this, by studying this, we understand that our time is valuable. Our resources that you have given to us are valuable. That you are a gracious God who will reward us in lavish ways for what we have done. You want us to work for reward, not to obtain salvation, not in some legalistic pretense. Oh, no. You want us to work for reward because it glorifies you and it brings joy to us. So we are motivated, Lord, to do all that we can for you during our time down here on this earth. Help us not to get caught up in all the frantics all of the talk, all of the speculation that you're soon going to return. You may soon return. It may next week, month, year. We don't know when it is. But what you've told us, us, don't worry about when I'm going to return. Just do my business in the world while you're still here. And if you do, I will reward you. So thank you again for this passage. Help us to really understand it, Lord. Help it to just affect our lives, to change us, transform us, turn us around. For we pray this all in Jesus' name, and for his sake alone. Amen.